Welcome to Bible of a Brews. Deep thoughts fermented over time and text. I'm coming at you, Aaron Crew Juice Viverka, and I've got Mike. Howdy. Gumby. Hey, what's up? <laughs> Keith. Salutations. <laughs> Zechariah. Theo. And our guest. <laughs> and our guest, Swan Sona, I believe you pronounce it. Yep, you got it right. All right, awesome. <laughs> and we're going to be diving into what is the papacy. But before we do that, we are going to express the fact that we are dining on Four Roses bourbon. It is delicious and delectable. Mix up your favorite cocktail with a sophisticated contemporary flair with this widespread favorite. Enjoy this smooth and mellow bourbon with its long and soft finish. Savor its unique aromas and flavors in your favorite bourbon cocktail, on the rocks, or with a splash. 80% proof and 40% alcohol by volume. Mm. And we are tonight drinking this in more or less a Manhattan. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Shout out to our bartender. Oh, thank, thank you, sir. You. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> thank you, sir. Mm, so good. Is it really that red? It's so, just incredibly red. Well, so that's the maraschino syrup. Oh, okay. Plus you that add, explains so much. <laughs> plus you add the maraschino cherries and the bitters. So, <laughs> Zechariah, what do you have over there? Uh, I'm just sticking with my usual uh, old Rasputin. Ooh. Russian Imperial Stout. I love a good Russian Imperial Stout. <laughs> Is it the breakfast stout? No, nah, just normal. Just a normal stout. one. Sweet. Speaking, so, speaking of breakfast stout, since I uh, since we have a newborn and I'm a little bit sleep deprived, uh, <laughs> my brew today is actually coffee. It's out of my Aeropress with the Prismo pressure actuated attachments <laughs> zelly beans el salvatore mapache estate and i ruined it with some smeared off oh. <laughs> so it has a russian twist no, i said it I... yeah we yeah. believe you there's coffee i also there. use we an aeropress and i'm drinking the uh local brand of mount strata coffee high altitude aerobic specialty coffee beans grown here in the mountains the Himalayas from the fall nice. oh that sounds delightful. <laughs> sounds great. We should do a morning podcast. Right? Oh, yeah, different beans. That would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is a morning podcast for you. <laughs> Coffee yeah. is a brew. So, uh, Swan, can you tell us our background and, uh, and fill us in for our audience? Yeah, well, let me begin by thanking uh, all of you for having me on. Uh, basically, so my name is Swan Sona. I'm a philosophy student at Kansas State University. Right now in my third year, after this semester, I got one year left and then I'll be uh, moving on with my life. So uh, I have a podcast, YouTube channel, Facebook page called Intellectual Conservatism. And originally that page was a Facebook page about my journey from being like a democratic socialist liberal to becoming more like a Burkean conservative or in the, you know, in the tradition of Aristotle and Aquinas. So that's how it started. And then now... Uh, I converted to Catholicism during Pentecost 2020, and I entered, that's when I entered the church. So I've been recently a Catholic, 
And uh, that's been a lot of my focus. So right now, a lot of my research and personal uh, studies has been on things like the papacy and other Catholic doctrines. So I right now have a paper coming out in the Haythrop Journal um, about the Jewish roots of the papacy. So I'm excited. I don't know when that's coming out just yet. I finished all the edits and they accepted it. So we'll see. Awesome. Well, I loved your debate on your channel <laughs> for the papacy. It was really good. I hands <laughs> yeah, down, <thanks. laughs> you hands down won that debate. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it, man. So it was well, a good debate. Yeah. You don't against Ty. Is his name Ty? That guy? Yeah, Ty Ninky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the Sol Sultura one. Yeah, that was, that was, that was very one sided. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually felt pretty bad for him. <laughs> yeah. I I'm, I'm Protestant. Yeah, so. I'm going to be nice and I won't, I won't comment. <laughs> <laughs> so do you take notes? a good idea if you want to be invited to other debates. <laughs> I don't think you need to. I think your comments already won the day. <laughs> Swan, do you take notes when he's speaking or your debater's speaking? Yeah, um, I always try to take notes on, so I don't know if you saw it in the, in the videos, but I had like a legal pad. So I was writing down all my notes and then uh, I had a lot of um, like responses already prepared. I was anticipating certain objections. So I had all my sources organized. Oh, okay. So that's what I was doing during his um, statements. Yeah, yeah very good. kind of be interested to like look over your shoulder, see what's being written down, you know, like, <laughs> I can't believe this guy's up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wasn't. I, yeah, I wasn't writing anything like silly or anything like that. It was just all like, you know, business on the papers. So that's what I focused on. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, have you ever looked over to your opponent and seen like a giant fly on his forehead and it won't leave? Oh, <laughs> no, I haven't seen that. Not yet, at least. But that that would be interesting. Hopefully, it's not when I'm trying to run for president. But yeah. actually, I'm not planning. I'm not planning on that at all. I have oh, no aspirations. You heard it here first. He's running for president. <laughs> no, 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 I have no political aspirations whatsoever. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, on my past studies, I, I dived into uh, uh, studies from Brent Petrie. That's where I actually took my notes from tonight. Yeah. So, um, and I noticed that you actually hit most of those points in your debate. So, which was pretty cool. So, for example, if you go over uh, Jesus and the keys of the kingdom. Yeah, I mean, so when it comes to Brant Petrie's work, I think um, all he's done is, I think, one lecture on YouTube about it. Um, I'm not sure if he's actually written anything else about the particular issue. I know he's written more about the Eucharist than the Blessed Mother. Uh, so, yeah, I mean... I thought he did a great job in that lecture. And when it comes to the keys of the kingdom, uh, there's a lot that can be said, but basically um, the keys of the kingdom appear in Matthew 16, 19, after Peter makes his confession to Christ and Christ says, uh, you know, thou art Peter and upon this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So that's an allusion back to Isaiah 22, 22, when uh, Shebna, who was the former prime minister, I think he was under King uh, Hezekiah, um, he ends up dishonoring God, basically. And then God in Isaiah 22, 22, strips him of his office and gives the keys of the house of David to Eliakim. And then God says, whatever you open, none shall shut. And whatever you shut, none shall open. So there's clearly a parallel that's going on there. 
And I can go into more like the reasons why the parallel is not just something we're imagining, but it's something actually, I would say, intended by Matthew, right? But the keys in the ancient um, times of Israel had two functions. So one of the functions was that it would serve as the symbol of the prime minister's authority. The prime minister served second in command to the king. And when the king was not immediately present at the throne or was out maybe doing some diplomatic matters, then the prime minister would become the regent of the kingdom while the king was gone. So in some sense, you could say he's his vicar. The second power of the keys was to open the palace and to decide who could enter and who you know, had to leave or be expelled. So for instance, the NIV cultural background Bible talks about how you know, the keys on one hand gave the prime minister the ability to open every single official palace door. Uh, I think it was in Jerusalem. Uh, and then also uh, the 1970 New Bible Commentary edited by Donald Guthrie and others talks about how the keys represent the authority of the prime minister to be second in command to the king himself. And everyone else was under him. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... Huh. It's pretty intense. So do we have yeah. parallels like Joseph with Pharaoh? Yeah, so interestingly enough, um, in Roland DeVoe's book, Ancient Israel, It's Life and Institutions, uh, DeVoe talks about when it comes to, so the prime minister is also called the master of the palace or the steward of the palace. Um, and basically what one notices is that the powers of the Davidic prime minister were incredibly similar to those of the vizier, under the Pharaoh in Egypt. So basically in the book of Genesis, when uh, Joseph is given uh, the ability to be second in command to the Pharaoh and he becomes his vizier, it also says that um, the, vizier, uh, the Pharaoh made him master of his house or of his palace. And then DeVoe begins to trace out some parallels between, um, for instance, the prime minister and the vizier. So he actually makes the argument that what happens is when the Davidic monarchy uh, is built up, it basically inherits a lot of some of the Egyptian institutions that were there um, hundreds of years before under Joseph and now, you know, being brought into the Davidic kingdom. So there are parallels, yeah, between uh, Joseph's time in Egypt and the construction of the Davidic kingdom. That so, carries on, I guess, with Daniel and Persia, right? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's the extent of my knowledge, I'll say. Mm -hmm. So what are... Uh, have you run across or what are your thoughts on, uh, say, the work that uh, has been done that sort of gets into some of the rabbinic uh, discussions on uh, Shebna and Eliakim and interprets him more as a high priest figure and the parallels between, like, the keys and the keys of the temple? Do you have any, anything on that? Yeah, I mean, so I don't... Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm right now actually learning to kind of read the rabbinic literature and dive in. I've only done, I've done some basic work into it. I've looked into some of the parallels, but not everything. Yeah. Uh, so when it comes to, for instance, uh, what the, what the uh, rabbis have said about Shebna and Eliakim, I haven't read anything about that. Um, so I'm probably going to have to investigate that later. But I do know, for instance, um, when you talked about like the keys to like the temple, that was certainly something that was there in the... Uh, in the second temple period. I think also, um, you know, Craig S. Keeter in his 2014 IVP New Testament commentary, he talks about how the rabbis would sometimes use the language of the keys of knowledge. And especially Matthew Henry's Bible commentary kind of includes how there were different keys in Judaism that represented various different things. But um, I mean, 
Um, I don't know if those are terribly relevant uh, necessarily to knocking the parallel or if they do anything to the parallel necessarily. I just think those are interesting kind of um, metaphors right, yeah, for the rabbis. Where I, where I first ran into this is when uh, uh, Michael Barber's Jesus is a Davidic temple builder. Right, and he yeah, goes yeah. into a whole thing of uh, how they're, they're looking at the, the words used for the garments of uh, Shevna and they're seeing them as priestly garments. And then he draws like this whole host of parallels about the keys of the temple being returned to God, uh, them representing authority. So yeah. in that in that way, he seems to, to view Peter as more of a high priestly figure as opposed to simply a minister. Right. I mean, yeah, so that's good. Um, so when it comes to, for instance, Shebna, we know that Shebna in the Old Testament was the secretary before he was the prime minister. And um, as the secretary, or I think he was the treasurer, excuse me, I think he was the treasurer. As a treasurer, he would collect various taxes, and one of these taxes included the temple. So he would get the temple tax. Um, so he was associated, at least with the religious kind of life of Israel. And then when it, it says, you know, in Isaiah, I think, 22, 21, that um, Shebna is stripped of his tunic and girdle. A tunic and girdle are the two things that a priest would wear. It's part of his garments, right? So it seems like Shebna then had some type of religious authority. We don't know exactly what it was, but also in the Davidic kingdom, there wasn't a strict distinction between church and state anyway. So, you know, well, I mean, where is there in the ancient world? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. And then uh, we know, for instance, in Jewish tradition that the tunic and the girdle also gave whoever wore it, specifically the priest, the power to forgive certain sins. So specifically, this would come into play on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would not just wear four garments, he would wear eight garments, and each of the eight garments were associated with the forgiveness of certain sins. So this idea that, you know, I think it's fair to say that Peter is not just purely, right, um, a prime minister in a political sense. There's clearly intermingling with the spiritual reality of the world. Um, but then, I mean, the same is true of Jesus, right? So this is kind of one of the arguments I use to defend the parallel, but Jesus is the son of David, he is the Davidic king that was prophesied in 2 Samuel 7, chapter, verses 8 to 14. And Jesus' kingdom is both spiritual and physical, and it has elements of the Davidic monarchy, which we would expect if he's the son of David rebuilding his father's kingdom. So, yeah, I mean, uh, for instance, in A. Edward Shesensky's book, uh, The Papacy and the Orthodox, I think he noted that lots of scholars have compared Peter to like a head rabbi. Um, so maybe that's like the better intermingling of both. But yeah, he's not purely just a political prime minister. That's the key takeaway. Okay. Do you have his uh, genealogy? Which tribe is he from? Uh, uh, talking about Jesus or? No, 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 of course. I'm talking about uh, the guy with the keys in, in Isaiah 22, Shepard. Ah, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think, I'm, I'm tempted to say that he wouldn't be from the line of Aaron. That's all I know, because... You know, the line of Aaron would be the ones that produced the high priest. And then um, Eliakim obviously wasn't a high priest, although he did have at least a, a religious significance with the things that he wore. So I don't know the, I don't know the genealogy of Eliakim. That might be something to look into if, if there's anything in the biblical text. Awesome. Yeah, and then uh, I know that the, uh, the foundation... Well, there's some connection oh. also. Was that Theo? I was just saying there's also the connection back to Moses. It's uh, 
Some scholars have, have dabbled in the idea that originally uh, Moses was intended to be the single leader, and it's his rejection originally at the burning bush that uh, causes God to bring in Aaron, and that's when the bifurcation happens. Mm. And then eventually you have, like, the prophets to come on top of that, and you kind of have a threefold model. But originally they're, they're keen on a one system, one ruler system, which incidentally happens basically at times like uh, after Daniel or depending on where you date Daniel, but uh, in the Hasmonean period, you just have one leader and there's some concern in the second temple period literature, why we don't have the two. And of course in Jesus and then the Hebrews, how it models that he's the single. And uh, I was curious because Swan in his debate mentioned like Jesus being Moses and passing on to Joshua uh, which Peter becomes as Joshua. But then we're looking at this priestly aspect too, and Jesus being the high priest, and how Revelation and some other scriptures talk about from Exodus 19.6, how we're to be a kingdom of priest or kingly priest or royal priesthood. And the language tied all in Leviticus that he mentioned earlier about the eight garments and uh, that the high priest wears and the crown he wears. And in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch specifically, there's not much talk throughout the Hebrew Bible about king's garments so much. That's one of the aspects that, that is unique about the Hebrew Bible. They're not much into the priestly, I mean the king's garments or his accoutrements. It's all about the priestly garments. And there's so much emphasis on the priest and the, and the crowning of the priest and the wearing of that crown. And as he said, walking in the graces. And he carries the absolute presence of the grace of God for that forgiveness uh, on Yom Kippur, and so, you know, I, I, there's just this idea that Moses kind of dropped the ball there. Uh, you can pick that up uh, through John Collins in his scepter and star, Messianic Light of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He gets into this, uh, the, the, where uh, Moses uh, was to be the one, and then it gets split into two. And there's, it, there's more there, but Collins is, is probably your lead point to get you in there. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I haven't heard too much about that before, so I appreciate it. Yeah, that was good. That was good. And then uh, I like how uh, how uh, it was brought up, uh, the foundation stone. And because when you go mm -hmm. back to the temple, that was, you know, that's actually where the ark would have sat, right? And that's, that's, that's like a key element of the temple. So... And it goes, it harkens back to Matthew as well. In the ark. Yeah, it harkens back to Matthew as well when he says that he is going to build it on him and he calls him the rock. It kind of harkens back to the foundation stone of the temple. I mean, yeah, there, there's so many parallel, there's so many things that are going on in that particular phrase. I mean, it's not just, right? So I think there's clearly a foundation stone parallel. And, um, uh, you know, as, um, as, uh, as has already been mentioned about like Jesus being the Davidic temple builder and that sort of thing, right? There, there's a lot that's going on in that particular passage. So I think the foundation stone parallel is important, but also um, Ben Witherington III in his commentary on Matthew also mentions the fact, and other people like, you know, Anthony J. Sauterini and the Erdman's commentary in the Bible, I picked up on the fact that um, in Caesarea Philippi, you know, there was this giant rock that stood, and it was this rock of pagan worship, and it was basically a sign to the entire world from Phil the Tetrarch um, that he had dedicated it to Caesar as a god, basically. And then people there worship Pan. 
And Ben Witherington III kind of notes that he thinks that people haven't appreciated enough the fact that Jesus kind of picks the right place, so to speak, to start talking about Peter being the rock. Because at a place where there's pagan worship, he's going to now build a new temple that's going to replace the pagans. Like, it's just, it's, it's incredible. There's so much going on in just that one little phrase. Are we talking about uh, Mount Hermon here? Say that again? Are we talking about Mount Hermon here? Oh no, not Mount Hermon. Um, I don't, I don't know what the stone is in in the uh, in Caesarea Philippi called, but yeah. Because okay. yeah, Hermon Bonius, uh, yeah, he's talking about that definitely. Yeah, because that was where the, the Pan cult was is at Mount Hermon, mm. which is also uh, as some of our as some of our podcasts look into. There's some interest. Well, we'll know this is wherein Second Temple uh, literature. Uh, there was thought to be uh, one of the falls of the angels, which was uh, uh, especially in the Dead Sea Scroll community. Uh, Qumran was recorded in uh, First Enoch, which was important to some Jewish. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's there's definitely definitely this big air air uh, of uh, Jesus is going to a place that's really thought of as a place of supernatural evil. Yeah, yeah, the the gates of Hades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and also, uh, I remember Steve Ray, another Catholic apologist a while back, he uh, he talked about how there, there were streams around the rock or, that led to the underworld, and that's maybe why Jesus mentions, you know, the gates of the netherworld or hell, right? And I kind of thought, like, okay, maybe that's just Steve Ray, you know, because he's not, like, a biblical scholar. I mean, he, you know, I respect him, right? But then I actually looked, and I saw, like, oh, no, there, there's there's credibility to what he's saying, so... You know, in that same commentary by Ben Witherington III, he mentions the fact that the streams surrounding the rock were believed to have led to the underworld. Um, so then there's a lot <laughs> that's going on in Matthew 16, 18. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Bashan is definitely in, in view. Yeah, Bashan is, is the gateway to the underworld. So it's it's basically the uh, highway to hell in the engineer <laughs> east. That's what it is. of Bashan, they all that. And that's all tied to the Greco-Roman uh, at Pontius. And then you have Isaiah 9 talking. If you look at Isaiah 9, you'll pick up on it too. And the geography of Isaiah 9 is just phenomenal. Because there's the river of Latani that flows across, uh, you know. And so he talks about uh, the, the uh, verse 9 of Isaiah. Let's see, it's verse, is it chapter... Nine, but which verse? I'm trying to see exactly. It's one or two, but it says, "But in the latter time, he's made a glorious way of the sea. That way of the sea, you follow from the Mediterranean Sea, the river Litani, and you'll right will run right into Mount Hermon, Bashan. You run into that whole thing, and so, and then of course Isaiah nine six is talking about the governments, and then Aaron just mentioned the uh, ark and temple building. You mentioned from uh, Barbara's dissertation. And so the whole idea of the king was to establish the government to build the temple, which is a representative of God on earth. And so it's the uniting of the priest and the king as God is enthroned and his feet touch not the earth, but the ark. And it's that touch point that Aaron was getting at, that the ark is where the feet of God, the rule, the kingdom of God lands at that precise point. And Jesus, according to Heiser's work out of the unseen realm, Jesus is at Mount Hermon on this rock, which is multivalence going on there. It's not just Peter and the rock, but it's on this mountain, this place where the highway to hell is. 
It's this place where Jesus was stirring up and he's calling forth all the powers of hell saying, I'm here, do something about me because I'm here and we're ready to, to throw down and have a fight. And so even then geography there of verse 1 and 2 of, of Isaiah 9, going down to verse 6, that famous Christmas passage about the governments that's being set up, it's all there in the geography. It's all, it's all tied into exactly what Jesus is doing. There's a, you could spend forever on Matthew 16, yeah. <laughs> that, that is just a huge touch point. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. There is uh, a chock full of, uh, of comments and themes and motifs that tie you right to the, that first century view. You know, it's everything from the pagan theologies of the time that echo into that first and second and third century Christianity. It all ties together just perfectly. Yeah. And yeah, like, like I was, like I kind of hinted to, like the, one of the Messianic Psalms, the one that uh, Jesus quotes on the cross, the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It goes on, it speaks of these, the bulls of Bashan encompassing uh, him, and that is the, the region of the Sistriot Bashan. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, stuff. I'm learning something new here too. So this is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you talk about Moses. You know, when Moses went into the Promised Land, they tried at Kadesh Barnea, and that's tied to the Rephaim, and that's tied to the the ancient spirits of the dead, and those. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Tolkien picks it up in the Lord of the Rings when you know uh, Aragon takes him those dead kings, you know, dead leaders, the spirits to yeah. fight. The so it's kind of like you're, you're dealing with that. And so they stop in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. They stop, and they're supposed to go north, and they don't because they rebel. So he takes them around Edom, takes them all the way up where? Where does he take them to? Where does God take them to? He says, I want you to get your, uh, I want you to take out the most important uh, enemy there is. And he takes them right up through there to Bashan, to Og. Sihon. He takes him right up there and destroys all that. Then he comes back down at Jericho, and then at Mount Nebo, Moses passes it over to Joshua, says, now go in, okay. But what they took out first and most important was Bashan, and that's where Jesus goes, back to there. And you have Moses, Bashan, you have Moses at the Transfiguration, you have all that tied in there. It's all tied, that geography. It's, it's huge. It's massive. I mean, we're, we're never going to come to it the beginning of it. This is just the tip of the iceberg. So. Yeah. Well, and it's, and you're speaking of uh, the transfiguration, that's a beautiful touch point right there because it also echoes forward into the, the Catholic tradition, uh, showing how those on the other side still assist us. It's, it's, it's really cool the way that that passage parlays into that first and second century theology. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. <laughs> um, but the speaking of the going back to the rock itself, that's also what the temple keys were affixed to. They were uh, they were affixed to a to a rock when it was passed from priest to priest, from cycle to cycle. So again, it, there's that there's that uh, that uh, wordplay going on in the background. Because he calls him the no. little, he calls him the little rock, and the little rock is what was what the keys were affixed to, and then says that he will make make him the rock, right? So, and mm. the wordplay is a lot more clear in in Greek, but <laughs> you can see it if you dig. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Was this the first keychain then? Like, is it a little rock, like handheld or big? Or... Well, the Polaroids weren't as good back well, what, then. What is interesting... <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm just saying to key off on that a little bit, what is interesting, the one place of authority the Jews had in the time of Christ at the temple was this stone that uh, has the inscriptions of the boundary that Gentiles cannot cross here or they die. And so yeah. Jews were given rights to uh, that rule, that rock, that stone. And it kind of represents the two pillars that's in the tabernacle or at the temple later on that they're trying to figure out a Solomon's temple. Uh, the two pillars that are upright, uh, they also would uh, be the boundary between the world below, the, the world of earth and under earth, and the heavenly realm inside the temple. And so the Jews were allowed by the Romans that anyone who violated that, and so they could take out Paul because that's what they accused Paul of. They accused him of bringing a Gentile across that boundary, past that stone, into the holy place, into the holier uh, confines of the temple and the sanctuary. And so it's a boundary marker to stop them. And so it's, it's again, like a key's locking, unlocking, like binding and loosening. You know, and back to what uh, Zechariah was talking about with the binding and loosening, the rabbinical tradition, the authority with those keys. And so the Romans gave the Jews that authority on that alone they had the only authority all else outside of that one thing to my knowledge again i, I agree with swan i don't know everything but to my knowledge that's the only authority the romans gave the jews for capital punishment if you cross that line that boundary go past that stone go past that you're breaking that authority you're, you're breaking the binding loosening aspect then they can act against paul and they can you know have him killed but um that's, that's, again, tying this authority, the keys, the whole thing is all laid out in there in the authority, even in the time of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome stuff. Yeah, Moses does, has come, off, come up a lot. I know you've done, you've done uh, a bit of study there. Does that play into your whole uh, uh, thrust with the papacy? Yeah, I mean, so there, there's a lot of things that can be said about, you know, the relationship between Moses and Christ and ultimately the papacy. So, I mean, for instance, I think it's now being, I mean, so, you know, Ambrose all the way back had recognized, you know, many of these parallels between Christ and Moses. And then we also know based on Jewish tradition that the people believed that when the Messiah would come, he would essentially be a second Moses. So that was intrinsically tied to the very idea of who the Messiah was going to be. So, for instance, uh, Roger David Oss in his book on uh, John 21, 15 and 19, he talks about how, for instance, the Jews during the time of Christ, they believed that just as Moses had saved Israel from Egypt, the new Moses would save Israel from Rome. So there was a lot going on there in terms of just the expectation that Christ would be the new Moses. In the paper that's getting published in Haythrop, I list out 10 parallels between Christ and Moses. Some of them are actually, um, you know, you, you know, like in the book of Hebrews, there's some, you know, uh, play between both characters. But in, I believe it's uh, in the book of Mark and Matthew, there's a part where it says that Jesus looked upon the children of Israel and had pity on them as if they were sheep without a shepherd. And then when you go back to, I think it's the book of Numbers uh, or Deuteronomy, either one of those, Moses is looking upon Israel and he sees that he's about to die. 
and it says that he looked upon them as if they were sheep without a shepherd. So there, there are some, there are some really remarkable parallels that are going on there that you, yeah, that you, you just couldn't miss. Right? Speaking, speaking of a remarkable parallel, like just this morning, uh, I woke up early uh, because like a friend of a friend of ours, I think he's gonna probably be on the podcast at some point. Uh, Robert is doing a Bible study, and we went over that very thing. And we were touching on the parallel of. And he was talking about that passage in Numbers about the, the sheep. Numbers. Okay, good. Didn't have a shepherd. And then that's the that's where uh, Joshua comes in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then basically to kind of finish some of the argument out, this is not the entire thing, but there's just some important bits here. Um, we know that based on Jewish tradition, for instance, in the book of Enoch, two sheep are mentioned that Moses hands over to Joshua in the Avot of Rabbi Natan, which includes the saying of the fathers, so the saying of the Jewish sages, uh, Rabbi Natan records that I think, um, uh, you know, there are some other sheep that were given to Moses, uh, that Moses gave to Joshua. When you put these sources together, um, in Roger David Oss's book on John 21, 15 and 19, and Oss is a Lutheran scholar, by the way, um, Oss makes the point that when you look at all the sheep that Moses handed to Joshua, you see that they're the same three sheep that Jesus hands to Peter in John 21, 15 to 19. And at that point then, Oz concludes like, yeah, so then Jesus is in effect making Peter head shepherd after him. He's in effect making him his successor as the spiritual leader of the new Israel. And when I read that, I just kind of got goosebumps like, wow, that's incredible. Uh, and the, and the, there are other things that we can mention too. So for instance, we know that um, Sifra Pinhas 149, um, on the Petra Moshe, which comes a little bit later, and um, I'm trying to remember, but other like rabbinic sources around the time of Jesus, or at least after him, the Petra and Moshe is after Jesus. Um, we see that it was believed that um, Joshua received the throne of Moses. So at that moment in Deuteronomy 34, 9, when, when uh, Moses lays his hand on Joshua and he's filled with the spirit, at that moment then, uh, it's believed that Joshua received the throne of Moses. So in effect, then, that meant that all the legal teaching authority of Moses was vested into one person. And then eventually Joshua uh, distributes the power among the other judges. But the point here, then, is that if that's the case, then the early Christians who were Jews and understood the traditions, they would have seen Peter then as being seated on the throne of the new Moses. So then that's, that's pretty significant because then that seat is where all the authority to bind and loose comes from. That's where all the authority to make declarations ex cathedra from the chair, from the throne, come from at that moment. So that's just something incredible that uh, I noticed in some of my research. And, you know, it, it, the, the parallel between Moses and Christ and Joshua and Peter, uh, it's pretty phenomenal. Awesome. Before we move yeah, on. That is. Oh. And then, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, before we move on to the next point, so far, what do the non-Catholics think about, about those touch points so far? Well, who are our non-Catholics? <laughs> well, actually, I think there's only three of us that are Catholic. So, <laughs> I, I think it's, uh, I'll, I'll speak for some non-Catholics. I think uh, it's interesting to hear, but it's really hard to grasp as a non-Catholic about the... Um, I guess authority as as what I would call a human, you know, to to go from a, a deity to a, from a god to a human. 
I just can't grasp or comprehend how where the similarity stops. Like, like part of me wants to say, well, you just trust Peter enough to make only good decisions, but it's just too high. I mean, maybe I'm just too jaded, but that's <laughs> uh, that's the one thing that I've always kind of veered away from Catholicism on is is how much authority they give other humans across mm-hmm. every church. You know what I mean? Like you can't you can't vet enough. And you know we've seen in the past some of that stuff rear its ugly head. So that's it's hard. It's it's interesting, and I love the correlations. But mm-hmm. it's definitely there's a part of me biting my tongue and and like ah, I don't know if it goes that far. <laughs> well, on on so on that side of it, because I also faced those ideas as well on my journey into Catholicism. Um, on those, it's it's very important to remember that you are not. It's not the person. It's not the person, it's the position. So just like if you have an officer arrest you, all right, he's rest, he's arresting you under not his authority, but the authority he carries with him because of his position. So those are, are less to do with the people themselves, rather that's the positions they carry. Yeah, yeah I understand so. that. But when you have like, Peter and Paul get into arguments about Mm -hmm. circumcision and stuff. At that point, it becomes a human debate. And to give someone the decisions in this realm, I'd rather it come from, (laughs) God, you know, keep the keys, please. (laughs) I take it back. Well, (laughs) and and that's why there's always been a magisterium. Because that way, remember, even when the Pope speaks infallibly, he speaks in accordance with the magisterium. Mm -hmm. So it's not a single person. So those are are key takeaways. Because... I don't know about the, you know what you've read in history, but it's not too often that God says, by the way, I need you to do this. <laughs> it's usually through people, right? He always works through people. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, speaking, yeah. Speaking, as, speaking as someone who is maybe, maybe a little closer, more Catholic adjacent, uh, I, I guess I'm very, I'm much more, much more sympathetic but uh, again, uh, I I I have certain misgivings that it's all completely centralized in one figure, mm. right? Where as opposed uh, as opposed to when I'm looking at uh, at Second Temple stuff, I see it I see it more spread out across the the seventy. And of course, there of course we do definitely have this idea of. Uh, earthly representatives of a heavenly reality, right? And that was that was a big, a massive turning point uh, for my understanding of things. And I don't I don't know if uh, Suan is going to touch on any of the uh, binding on earth as in heaven stuff. That was my I next know, touch point. <laughs> I know who who knows about uh, some of the stuff with that. <laughs> Yeah, so, do you mind if I come in, yeah, or yeah, is there anyone else who wants to kind of, like, contribute? No, no, you're good. Go ahead, son. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, no problem. Uh, so I can understand, like, the hesitation towards kind of the Catholic teaching on authority, right? Because, you know, we, like, I, just to kind of speak on uh, something that came into my mind, I think in the West, um, we've kind of given up on the idea of, like, any human being having absolute authority over us, Right. And this is largely because uh, this is largely a byproduct of, as Americans, the American Revolution, which was inspired by the Enlightenment, which was inspired by these ideas like consent of the governed um, and, and, and so on and so forth. 
But during the time of Jesus, we find a much different view of authority. And even in parts of Asia today, you know, so speaking kind of from my cultural background, uh, you know, even if you don't like the person, you have to respect the office. Or, for instance, even in, in the time of Jesus, right, in Matthew 23, 2 to 3, Jesus says, Obey the Pharisees and everything that they, the scribes and the Pharisees and everything that they teach you, for they are seated on the throne of Moses. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they preach. What's fascinating here is that Jesus is recognizing the authority of the Pharisees, but at the same time is acknowledging they're not morally good people, so you can't follow them there. And I think for us in the West, we think, well, if the guy's not morally good, then I don't have to obey his authority. Right? We can vote him out of office because we have a democratic society. But in the East, right, during the time of Jesus, what they care about was, okay, the guy might be bad, but does, was his authority or his position instituted by God? Which makes sense then of why Paul talks about in the book of Romans, obeying, you know, the powers in place because they've been instituted by God. Or even in John eleven fifty one to 52, after the uh, resurrection of Lazarus, uh, the Pharisees get together and begin to plot the death of Jesus. And then John includes this weird detail about how Caiaphas, when he had served as high priest of that year, had prophesied that Jesus would die for the sins of Israel and unite the children of God. So notice that even though Caiaphas was a morally deficient person, God nonetheless never took away his gift of prophecy. And even when he was high priest, he gave him the power to tell what the Messiah was going to do. So that during the time of Jesus, then, the view of authority was a lot different than how we view it today in the West. Um, and the question then is, you know, did God animate and plant this authority? That's the question that they were asking. And the guy might be bad, but he still got a legitimate power from heaven. So, for instance, uh, Zechariah wanted me to talk about the parallel between heaven and earth, right? So we know, for instance, uh, and Keener mentions this in his commentary on the IVP New Testament commentary, he mentions that during the time of Jesus, the Jews believed that the uh, high court in Jerusalem, or the great Sanhedrin, basically, that they could, buy, they could enact the decisions of heaven, such that whatever the heavenly tribunal had decided in heaven, the earthly tribunal and the Pharisees and the rabbis could enact those decisions. Now, there's a lot that I can say about um, you know, what's going on there, but basically this is why Jesus mentions whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Jesus is saying, basically, the Pharisees and the rabbis, they have this power, but now I'm giving it to my apostles, my rabbis. I'm making a new high court. I'm making a new rabbinic authority planted upon the apostles themselves. So then that's where the connection between heaven and earth comes in. And I actually want to read a quote. So um, there's, a, there's a rabbinic commentary by Rabbi Shabbatai Bass. He's a little bit later in the record. But what he shows, this is pre-Vatican I. So this is not like, I think this is over uh, 200 years or 100 years before Vatican I. So this is not like motivated, right, by any Catholic doctrine. There's no like... Um, you know, a desire of the Jews to like kind of one-up the papacy, right? This is before all of that happens. This is what Rabbi Shabbatai Bass writes. He says, quote, and this is on Deuteronomy 17:11 when Moses institutes the high court. He says, quote, even if, this is in Sifte Shakamin, even if he tells you, the judge, that what you consider right is left and that what you consider left is right, you should listen to him and blame the mistake not on him, but on yourself because Hashem always places his spirit on those who serve in a sanctuary and he guards them from any error so that only truth comes out from their mouths. So this idea of infallibility was in Judaism and it gets handed on to Christianity. And thus, 
Like when we say the Pope rules ex cathedra, that's actually something we got from Judaism. Because when the high court would make a ruling, they would rule from the throne of Moses, ex cathedra, Moses cathedras. So <laughs> those are some important details there to keep in mind. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I just want to also interject to Mike that after you that Mike, if you think about uh, Moses, we know he had his faults. We know like he got divorced, and his brother and sister kind of bring that up, and there's problems. But his father-in-law is what kind of God uses through Jethro to speak to him and says, "You need to get the seventy. And then we have the passing of Moses' spirit upon the 70, and that 70 is reflected in the 70 of Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, Heiser's Deuteronomy 32 worldview, the Genesis 10 and 11 nations, the gods, the divine council, and that's reflected then. But it's, it's interesting that it takes Jethro to kind of fire that into to Moses. So Moses does listen to Jethro, and God speaks to Jethro to get Moses because he knows Moses, you're human, you're going to make a mistake, and you need this, okay? And so, and then I, I would encourage you also, Mike, to listen to Swan's debate with Ty, because Ty tries to bring in all the stuff about Peter and Paul and the mistakes, and so Swan has dealt with that very nicely there. So as a non-Catholic, it's pretty nice to listen to him. Uh, he's dealt with the fact that Peter is not perfect. So he, he, but the idea is that that's the idea of God. You know, he started with Adam. He gave Adam the whole rule over all of creation, over everything. And Adam messed up, but God knew that. And he's, he's fine with that. And then we have, like I said, the new Moses passing it on to the Joshua. The new Adam passes on to his body, us. And so as God is forgiving of us, and we make mistakes, but we have each other as the body. We have the 70. And so in Luke 10, Jesus not only sends out the 12, he sends out the 70. You have that entire thing connected together. Okay, but it's all understanding that we've all been human, but God has done this from the beginning, from Adam he gave authority for Adam to be the king and the priest of Eden and take that out into the rest of the world and how Adam fell, and still God is still trying to do that when he started again with Noah, when he started again with you know each of us, so we're all forgiven. And so it's trying to pass that on so that we all reflect this Exodus 19, 6, kings and priests, that we all have that authority in a sense, that we're, but we're all in one accord in unity. And that's what I think the Catholic tradition is trying to exemplify most, is that we're all trying to be in one accord here and decide together instead of one single private interpretation. Mike reads his King James Bible from 400 years ago and decides this is what this verse means, and all of a sudden he's going to say, okay, you have to do what I say because this verse says that, Rather than your private interpretation, we're trying to take the entire tradition, Jewish and Catholic and Christian, all of it together. And, and you saw what he just, he's been saying in this podcast here, how it took over Rome. Okay? Jesus is speaking again. That we, we talk a lot because Heiser is familiar with this audience about the Bashan, but there's a Roman aspect there, the Caesars. The, the Greco-Roman context to that place as well, not just Mount Hermon in the Old Testament, but the Greco-Roman uh, sanctuary there of all their gods and all their rules and how the church became the new Rome and took over and, and took over that. So we, we got to take in all of that, Mike. We're not talking about the last 2,000 years. We're talking about all of the Bible, all of the tradition, Jewish and Catholic and the current 
state of affairs and understanding that humans do fail and God is willing to still use us. So I really liked what uh, Swan did in the debate with Ty on that and how he was able to address that. And if he wants to do more of that here, I don't know, but it was really nice. So the listeners need to go get that and listen to that. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Mike, but yeah, all... I'm I'm sure I'm sure a lot of our listeners because of course we've had Heiser on, uh, we've had David Burnett on, so they might clue in when uh, Suan mentions this uh, uh, celestial high court and like, okay, something's going on there, because I know that's that is what hit me hit me like a bombshell because uh, I I I'd been learning about this. The celestial, the celestial court of God, and all the Old Testament passages with that, and how Paul is used, uh, utilizing all of that in his theology of the principalities and powers, etc. Right, and then it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks when I'm reading, "Find on earth as bound, uh, will have been bound in heaven." Right, and I'm like, oh, oh. It's the connection. Well, I don't think you got to bring just a second, Zachary. I'm sorry, but I don't think Swan got to bring this point out in his uh, debate with Ty, because Ty tries to bring up uh, 16 as singular, where the keys are given only to Peter, and then in plural in chapter 18, and Ty tries to make something out of that. And I, I think that's what you're getting at, Hound. At least it, it is reverberating with me that it's not just Peter, but then through Peter, then it's the authorities passed, and we all have access to this in some sense. So it's it's still the throne of Moses. It's still the one guy, but at the same time, it's it's coming down through Christ, through His body, through everything, and we're all participating. So it moves from just Peter, and then in, in chapter 18, it's all, it's plural. And so I don't think Ty was able to understand that that that's a progression. It's not, you know, he's trying to make one priority over the other. It's both and. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, I, I lost where it was. <laughs> oh, right. could I could I mention something real quick? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, I just want, I just wanted to say that yeah, I mean, so there's a question here on whether or not Peter, in what sense did Peter uniquely receive the keys, right? Because for me, as a Catholic, um, but well, I want to say in my conversion too, like so, it's not just me as a Catholic now wanting to say this, but even even my conversion, you know, the question I asked myself was okay. Um, did Peter receive the keys and then we all got the keys? Is that kind of what happened? Is there a more institutional or hierarchical understanding of the reception of the keys or, you know, what's going on here? So, you know, I would say in response that one of the things to notice is that um, depending on how literally, or I don't want to say how literally, but for instance, a Catholic could say, well, look, it looks like Jesus is rebuilding the Davidic monarchy here, Mm -hmm. right? And if Jesus is rebuilding the Davidic monarchy, then we would expect a prime ministerial office, which he clearly seems to institute in 1619. And then we see the earliest Christians all unanimously saying, especially within living memory, that there were successors to the Petrine ministry. So much so that, for instance, uh, Marcus Bachmuel, in his book, Simon Peter and Scripture in Living Memory, Bachmuel is a Lutheran, I believe, uh, he acknowledges that Peter had successors to his ministry. And he says it is permissible to speak of successors to the Petrine Sea or something like that, even after the Reformation. Right? So he acknowledges that Peter had successors to his ministry. Now, there's another point that I want to bring up, which is also the kind of church that Christ built or the kind of uh, priesthood that he left behind. So uh, let, let me say this. Right? So one of the big things I think that, um, you know, uh, that people struggle with is this idea of apostolic succession. And the idea here 
I, mean, I think this is the clearest place where you see a, a hierarchical understanding of the church and the ministers and the priests and the bishops, right? So the idea of apostolic succession being that a church only has a valid, you know, sacramental and teaching ministry um, if its bishop can trace uh, his ordination back to the apostles. So one question you can ask yourself is, you know, like, where is this stated in Scripture, right? So I would say that the first thing I'd point out is that we have the earliest Christian sources, especially Clement of Rome, uh, who either wrote his letter first Clement in 68 AD or 96 to 99 AD. If it was written in 96 to 99 AD, then this would have been around the same time the Gospel of John and uh, Revelation was being written. Mm -hmm. If it was 68 AD, which actually seems to be the most probable dating, then this would have been written perhaps before the Gospel of Matthew, Luke, and John, and it would have been probably one of the earliest Christian texts ever written aside from the Pauline epistles. Uh, and it might have, uh, depending on which date you accept, predated Mark or, or, the, or, or come a little after. But regardless, Clement of Rome is writing a, church to the church in, a letter to the church in Corinth, and he's commanding them, you know, like, don't depose your bishops and your clergy. These were instituted by Paul and Peter, right? And then he says in chapter 44, verse 1 to 3 of his letter, so too our apostles knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that strife would arise over the office of bishop. And therefore, having received perfect foreknowledge, they added those who are already mentioned and afterwards added the provision to the effect that if these men should die, other men should succeed to their ministry. So that's in the within living memory of the apostles within the apostolic age. You have this already being taught and Clement of Rome before uh, I think it was the Council of Carthage that formed the canon. Uh, Clement's letter was read as scripture in the earliest Christian liturgies that we have. So Clement's letter was acknowledged as scripture on par with the rest of the apostles, although it doesn't make the final cut. So then interestingly enough, we see, for instance, uh, Ignatius of Antioch in 98 to 117 AD on his way to die in Rome. He writes a series of letters to different churches, and he says, um, basically, he says, you know, he talks about how the, the bishop is the image of the father. And then he says the deacon is like the sun. And he compares the presbyters to the band and the council of the apostles and the heaven. I think he mentions the heavenly court. And then Ignatius says, um, and if you don't have these things, a bishop, a presbyter, a deacon, apart from these, a gathering cannot be called a church. And what's, and what's important here is that Ignatius is a disciple of John. So he knew one of the apostles and was ordained or trained by him. And then you have Irenaeus then in AD 180, saying, or 180 AD, saying, you know, basically against the her against heresies, he, you know, he writes in that, in that book, um, you know, all these other churches that are rising up with their heresies, I've asked them for their succession lists. Show me your bishops. I'll show you my succession list, right? I can trace my ordination back to John. You guys can't. And then some people think, well, okay, you know, Irenaeus is just hyping himself up. He's just, you know, kind of using a rhetorical device to defend himself. But then when you look, at first, gen, uh, first century Palestinian Jewish practices, you, uh, for instance, in Alfred Edersheim's book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he notes that when the Jewish authorities would appoint someone to the office of priest or judge, they would use the laying on of hands, and at least, you know, three men would usually perform the ceremony. At least one of the men had to be able to trace the ordination through Joshua and to Moses or else the ordination was invalid. So when Irenaeus is talking about demanding a succession list, this is not a Christian in the second century inventing this requirement. This was something that existed during the time of Jesus and the apostles, 
and appear, appears to have been handed down all the way into the second century, such that if we understand the apostles as the new rabbis of Christ, and we understand that Christ set up a new rabbinic authority, then the legitimate authorities that are instituted in the name of Christ, in the name of the new Moses, have to be able to trace their ordination through the new Joshua to the new Moses. All right. Yeah. Bike at a rebuttal. <laughs> well, it's sort of, I don't know, an evolution of the conversation in a way. Um, what are your thoughts of, as society goes, so does the Catholic Church as far as tendencies? It, does, it seems like, you know, when I was a youngster, Catholicism, they really stood their ground a lot. You know, divorce was really frowned upon and it was public. Everything was public. Now, it seems like, you know, the current pope has been more lenient even even to suggest to some that civil unions in homosexuality is is now acceptable which i don't really i didn't hear him speak but um it just seems like it's becoming more and more liberal which i'm not saying is a good or a bad thing i'm saying it's changing and that arrow that directional arrow of of even if you're talking god speaks through humans of humans changing something on earth that has always sort of been a law and then heaven following that. So the directional arrow points from earth to heaven instead of heaven to earth and then back to heaven sort of thing. That's the part I'm having a hard time reconciling. It seems like the church is right. evolving and becoming more liberal, but I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good question. I think the first thing I'd say is that, um, you know, I didn't become Catholic because I like the Pope. Uh, I have nothing against Pope Francis, but it's just like you know. I mean, you know, if it was, even if it was Pope um, John Paul, the, Pope Saint John Paul II, right? I mean, that wouldn't have shaped my decision at all. Um, I became Catholic because of my love for Christ, and I realized, okay, this is the Davidic monarchy built on the earth. This is what the Jews were waiting for. This is the Messianic kingdom now, right? And then it will be completed in the eschaton, but. So I, I, I kind of just said when I, when I kind of, when that hit me, I was like, okay, I'm willing to trust, you know, because I trust the testimony of the men who lived 2000 years ago and saw the Jesus that I love. And even though they wrote their testimonies, maybe 20, 40, 60 years after the fact, I, I trust that God protected them. I trust that in the second century, God didn't let his church fall to pieces immediately. Right. And I noticed that, that this is part of the Christian life to trust and uh, I said, okay, God, you know, I'm having a hard time trusting everything the Catholic Church says. And I guess, like, God had the grace of at least saying, okay, look, look at the first two centuries. Look at those within living memory, Swan. That's all you got to do. And when I did that, I started realizing, wait, there, there's, there's enough here to get me the rest of the home stretch, so to speak. Uh, the second thing I'd say is when it comes to the civil unions and kind of Pope Francis's position, I mean... One of the things is that, uh, you know, Catholics are going to emphasize that, like, Pope Francis is not speaking ex cathedra. So technically speaking, it doesn't, like, fall under strict adherence of the church, right? Um, the other thing uh, is that it's interesting. Um, I think it was the Bishop of San Francisco or the Archdiocese of San Francisco. One of them, they actually wrote a letter, and they explained that Pope Francis's comments were, to some extent, taken out of context, right? Mm -hmm. So Pope Francis was talking about um, civil unions— not just for gay couples, but also, let's say, for a brother and sister or a brother and a brother or a sister and a sister who live together and they wanted to share property and have joint bank accounts and that sort of thing, right? So it could also apply to non-sexual unions. So then 
by consequence, it would apply to a gay couple, right? Because Pope Francis was saying, well, you know, I want them to at least have that legal property recognition under law, which is something that I think uh, some libertarians and others I've heard are sympathetic towards. But uh, the other thing, too, is, you know, Pope Francis also recently said, you know, the church can't bless sin in reference to gay marriages in, in Germany, you know? So, Thank you, you know, Pope, uh, Pope right. Francis, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, you know, he, he, he's our guy. <laughs> and we're going to get one word from our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to train Muay Thai? Perhaps there's no gyms near you. Perhaps you work odd hours. Perhaps, like a few of us, you don't like germs. Whichever way it goes, you can train online with some of the best instructors from around the country, either live or in class with other students. Living Muay Thai gives you the chance to do all of this and much more. So jump into live classes and on demand right now. LivingMuayThai.com And we're back. Sorry, we had to refill these amazing Manhattans with that lovely Four Roses bourbon. We are refilled and ready to go. I believe we were... uh, Who had the mic when we left? Was it Mike? I believe Uh, Mike had the mic. No, I think I dropped it. I think... uh, (laughs) No, just kidding. Mike's dropping the mic? Yeah, I think... uh, (laughs) Yeah, I think I was was about to chime in here. All right. uh, I was going to say I'm going to be the the ghost of Joe here, who is always present with us in spirit. (laughs) uh, So his... His whole read on the movement of the church, and especially with the current pope, is he he always goes to like this one obscure interview like that uh, Francis has, uh, where Francis uh, kind of dives. I think it was with like the head of the the Jesuits or something, and he 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 actually gets into uh, his the the method to his. Uh, I don't, don't want to say madness. <laughs> That's the colloquial uh, thing there so which is that he's always kind of pushing on people and saying very vague things to push things and then he pulls back on and a lot of people i don't think a lot of people don't remember like when he came early on in his career he actually uh made some very uh conservative reforms in uh, his his work even before he uh, 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 attained the office of Pope, right? But, like, even with, like, one of the, the contra- controversies recently, which, like, the Amazon Senate or whatever, he set this whole thing up, and everybody kind of panicked. <laughs> there was all this big deal about, oh, he's going to change church teaching. And then the Senate happened, and uh, Francis was like, okay, uh, that happened. Uh, we're not going to do anything with this, <laughs> right? So it's it it seems with him he's all always kind of pushing on people to to see where they're going to go with what he says, but he's always very careful in what he says so that somebody can always say, oh, this is what he actually meant, or he can always just not go through with something. Like well, and, and I, every I, now and then he'll make this very. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I think one of the problems like I had going in or I thought I was going to have going in is 
anyone who knows a little bit about history knows that there's there's been some bad popes, right? <laughs> well, so I thought that would be a hang-up for me. However, I will say this, going in, um, not a single one of the bad popes ever influenced any church teaching. It just They just kind of let the teaching lie. And so that spoke volumes of me. It kind of harkens back to you know, the Davidic kings, right? There was a lot of bad Davidic kings. But if you look at, at, um, at the series of popes, even the bad popes, they didn't change anything in teaching. They didn't change a dogma. They didn't change anything. So, so that, that spoke volumes to me, the fact that it didn't change what we were supposed to believe. I got something here real quick yes. before it goes it's too far in the rearview mirror. Um, Mike, <laughs> I thought your comment was really interesting about the trajectory of the church in our lifetimes, you know, maybe starting uh, more conservative and, and becoming, you know, more liberal in attitude with the Pope. And I, I, I fully acknowledge this is probably my, my lefty Catholic tendencies that are coloring this perception. <laughs> but I feel like in the trajectory of my life, it was like the church started out coming out of Vatican II as turning left and the right, especially in the U.S., really asserted itself and pushed a lot of those voices, the left voices of the sideline. And with Pope Francis, it's it's too early to tell. It's like we're right in the middle of it. And it's hard to see where that lands. Um, but kind of going to the, the, you know, what teaching changes and what doesn't, um, I had just mostly finished uh, reading um, Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation, um, I guess, well, it's, it's translation is Joy of Love, it's Amoris Letitia. And this is the one where, you know, if you read about in the news, you probably read about a footnote that a bunch of, you know, that the people kind of went crazy over about potentially allowing uh, divorced and remarried Catholics to receive communion. But the whole chapter eight of it is a very interesting and I think uniquely Catholic assertion of traditional teaching, but also like this acknowledgement that there can be grace in the lives of people who are living in imperfect situations, uh, people who maybe are cohabitating or, or divorced and not remarried in the church, um, things like that. So it's like um, he emphasizes very much he's not changing teaching, but he didn't, he's, he's backing off of the idea that we need to lead with Hey, you're you're doing a really bad thing here because everybody already knows yeah. <laughs> they're not living up to the measure and talking about you know not differentiating between like say like grave matter and sin sins that are are always sin and whether those sins are say mortal sins uh, in the life of an individual and acknowledging that hey this a lot of this is based off of what people have learned the situations they they live in you know, how intractable those situations are and that we, it's, it's basically a big, the big subtext of the chapter is don't judge. <laughs> we haven't changed anything, but don't judge. Mm. Yeah. I like mm. that. I like the point of, actually, I never thought of the point that maybe the right kind of inserted itself to change my perception, you know, because I've only got that opinion for a while, but I mean, to, to kind of validate some of the opinion is when Moses allowed the people to divorce and kind of Jesus said, well, that it's not really what we intended. Moses was doing that for the people rather than through God, but still 
it almost seemed to loose it in heaven because Moses loosed it on earth. And that's just the, that's the confusing part as a Christian. I guess I just want to be a sheep in this case where I want, you know what I mean? I want, <laughs> I want it only to come from God. So it does make it confusing. Like it's only half loosed because Jesus still doesn't totally agree with it. Yeah. Yeah. It gets confusing. Well, to go back to what uh, Swan was saying. So here's a quote right here. And it's, it's very interesting. It's by Irenaeus. And uh, I believe Part of this quote is what you were getting at. It says, uh, Since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the succession of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who are in whatever manner, whether by an evil pleasing or by vainglory or by blindness and perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings. Um, Oh, this I say by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient and universally known church found and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, also by pointing out the faith preached to men, which comes down to our time by means of the succession of the bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority. So right there, he's this is Irenaeus, in his time, saying that people must agree with Rome. <laughs> so, there's the other Protestant in the room. I, I don't know who else is. I know Mike, but I think on, you know, going back to the authority issue and, and through through the succession through Peter with the Catholic Church, yeah. for me, the broader implications is what I'm most concerned with. Right. It's being on the wrong team and not being on the right side of eternity. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is, is the heart of it with all different denominations, mm-hmm. whatever it is, whether it's Anglican or whether it's, you know, pick your denomination that's not Catholic, whatever, right. all right, or yeah. other religion. Being, that, that's what divides us, right? Mm-hmm. I, I remember Michael Heiser saying one time, when it's all said and done, are we going to be quibbling about the right point of view or whose right. outlook was right. Yeah. So when it's all said and done for each one of us, me as a Protestant, that's what rubs us wrong the most about, if I may use it for lack of better words, Catholic dogma, mm-hmm. that we're on the wrong side of the team. We're not going to make it there with you guys. Yeah. Because we're not on the right team. So, so, I, and th- that's where the authority piece Yeah. Yeah. And us rubbed the wrong way. And and I I totally get where you're going with that. The one thing I do love, and I don't know if if, uh, if Suan and uh, and Keith ever touched on this before, the one thing I've always loved since coming over is the fact that there is forgiveness on that for, like, let's say you weren't brought up as Catholic or introduced to the Catholic Church or you're Hindu or Buddhist. If you were never introduced to the faith, you may still find salvation because you haven't re- actually rejected the rock, right? So you haven't re- you haven't actually rejected that authority because you were never raised in that tradition, and, and the catechism does allow for that. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of the beauty of it. Whereas when I when I was Protestant, um, I was never sure if I could be saved because you have on one side. You, you have to speak in tongues. On the other side, you're predestined. And then, and so there was a lot of confusion before coming Catholic and now becoming Catholic. It's like the, the road, yeah, the road's narrow, but at the same time, 
finding that way, I don't have to worry about all these things. So I guess my question would be then, is Christ's church, the church, only Catholic? <laughs> Swan, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, punt the big question to me, huh? Yeah. Um, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. Um, I think one of the biggest things that shaped my conversion was John 14, 15. It's where Jesus says, if you love me, then you will do as I command. Mm. And I started thinking more about, okay, if I love Christ, then what did he command? And, you know, throughout my whole conversion, uh, facing the uh, rejection of my parents, the rejection of my community, the rejection of old friends, of childhood friends, uh, the pain that all that brought, I... I realized that I wouldn't have had to have made that decision had the Reformation not happened. You know, we wouldn't be in this in this tense state had the Reformation not happened, right? Or had Luther perhaps done his Reformation differently? Had he waited? Had he petitioned? Had he done this or that? So I, I, I the way that I see it sometimes, it's as if like you know, after the Reformation, we're trying to change the rules, right? When in reality, what was supposed to be there was that original unity. Or what Christ talks about in John, I think it's um, 1721. Father, let them be one, just as you and I are one, right? So it's not like you get to break up the church and then say, here's how we have to do ecclesiology, right? And I, I don't want to say that that's what you're doing. I'm saying about the Reformation itself and the phenomenon of this division that we're in right now. Yeah. But to kind of uh, bring it back, so then is the question, um, the question is, is the Catholic Church the only church of Christ? And then my question would be, what are the identifiers of the Church of Christ? So how do we identify the Church of Christ on the earth? Well, one, it's going to be one. As the scriptures teach, it's going to be holy. It's going to be universal or Catholic. Meaning it's for the entire world. And it's going to be apostolic. Right? As Ephesians 2.20 says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So then when I bring up all these other arguments about the Jewish ordination right, about how the church understood its authority, how what the, you know, for instance, Christ gave the apostles the authority to build his church. And he even says in Luke, I think, 10, 16, whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. So Jesus took the ministry of the apostles incredibly seriously. And by, by the fact that as Christians, Christ is our Messiah. He's our King. He's our Lord. We got to take what he takes seriously as well. So when we begin to look at, for instance, who the Messiah was, we know that the Messiah was supposed to be the new Moses. He's supposed to be the new, Dave, uh, the new David and the new Adam. As Catholics and Protestants, we agree that Jesus is the new Adam because he saved us from sin and saved us from the penalty of sin. So I'm not saying that you're not saved, right? That's not what I'm saying. Uh, when it comes to Jesus being the new Moses, right? Well, what was the new Moses supposed to do? Well, the Jews believed the new Moses was going to conquer Rome. Which church claims to have a special association with Rome? Which church claims to be the fulfillment of messianic prophecy in that way? Or, for instance, the New David. Which church actually is built after the Davidic kingdom? Which church actually has the prime minister that Christ instituted 2,000 years ago? Which church has apostolic succession? Which church can honestly look at the Bible and the historical context of the scriptures and say, we have what the apostles did? And that's what I'm going to say. That's where the Catholic Church truly comes out. Because, for instance, I think that a lot of Protestant churches will define oneness as oneness in the essentials. They'll define holiness in terms of Christ's holiness imputed to us. 
They'll talk about um, Catholicity in terms of just how the gospel's for everyone, right? But when it comes to the apostolicity of the church, Ephesians 2.20, you know, Luke 10.16, uh, you know, in, in John 20, 23, uh, Jesus get breathing upon the apostles, right, and sending them out on their ministry. Which church can honestly say it has the apostolic foundation and can historically and honestly trace itself back to the original preaching of the apostles and the earliest Christians? Yeah, that's a great rebuttal. And I'd like to throw it back in your court. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... It, I... Yeah, we can it's go back complex. <laughs> it's very complex because it is, um, for me, as, as someone who I was born and kind of raised into Catholicism, but only sort of like the Christmas and Easter Catholicism. Um, but then when I read the Bible and sort of it, it stripped me down to my roots of faith to where I kind of shed a lot of the stuff that my peers would talk about because they weren't true Christians, you know, and it, it kind of gave me a relationship with God in, in a way that, you know, if you go back to before the Catholic Church was established, you had that direct line. And, and, I, and I, I think I get what you're saying, Swan, is that you're not really committing to that Catholicism is the only way to salvation. Um, but, you know, it is, it is something that if, if you really grasp on the historic avenue of it there's a little bit more to bite on to but yeah i don't know i feel like we can all kind of trace our roots back into some sort of <laughs> rabbinic re- legacy in a way and so i i don't know that's just not something i would i'm not f- afraid of not being on the right side of eternity i guess well and for his um but then uh, and, you know oh go ahead swan well i just wanted to say too like um I mean, so, you know, when you look at how Jesus describes heaven, or in, for instance, when the apostles, they ask, they say, Jesus, hey, we, we gave up everything for you. What do we get in return? What's our reward? You know, Jesus says to the apostles, I'll give you 12 thrones from which you will judge Israel, right, in the parousia, the restoration. Or even, um, you know, uh, when, when Christ describes the, the prodigal son and the son's forgiven, and, the, you know, the prodigal son, he just says, God, just give me the ascent. He says, Father, give me just... You know, I'm only worthy of being a slave. You know, give me just you know some, just some clothes and some food, and that's it. That's all I, I deserve. And then the and the father lavishes the son and gives him more than what's quote unquote necessary. Mm-hmm. And what I want to say to you is that when we look at who Jesus is, especially when he says, "If you love me, then you'll do as I command." When we look at Jesus as the new David, the new Moses, and as the the new Adam, Jesus, our elder brother, right, the Son of God, he wants to spoil you because he loves you. And he gave you a kingdom where you can be spoiled with the sacraments, with grace, with his love, where you can have a historic connection 2,000 years back to the apostles themselves. Jesus doesn't want us to just have, quote-unquote, the essentials or the necessary. Jesus, like a good father, wants to spoil us with his kingdom. And then for me as a Catholic, then, when things seem kind of, you know, people say to me, uh, Swan, why is there so many extra things or why is there so much in Catholicism? It's because Jesus as a good father, as a, as a Middle Eastern, you know, host, he wants to put food on the plate. He wants to keep on giving and loving and giving all of himself to us so that when I look at the Catholic faith, you know, for instance, Paul talks about how one day, you know, we're going to judge the angels. Uh, Paul talks about how, uh, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to participate in the kingship of Christ, right? The, The reason why the Catholic church is so important, aside from the fact that Christ loves us and wants to spoil us with more than we can handle is because it, this kingdom that Christ came to bring as the Messiah, 
right? The Davidic Messiah, this kingdom that he's giving us, it's preparing us for the end of the world when you and I finally get to rule alongside Christ himself. So then why wouldn't you want to be in the kingdom now? Why wouldn't you want to listen to what Christ is saying through the apostles and over 2,000 years of history? You know, so, so for me, the papacy and these things, even though they can sometimes get institutional and yucky, right? Like, oh, there's just so much yeah. uh, uh, baggage, right? The beauty of it, the beauty of it, right, is that it's a kingdom. It's, it's a gift that Christ has given to us, and that's why he wants us to prepare for when we rule with him in the eschaton, in the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And so I want to say to you, like, I'm, I'm saying, you know, I'm not telling you to do this on pain of hell, right? That's not, <laughs> I'm not trying to back you into the corner. I'm saying I'm do, do this on pain of love, on pain of love for Christ and the fullness of what he has, has given you. That's all I'm saying. That's yeah. beautifully put. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. It, it, you know, and our response to that would be is that we believe that we are and we have been mm. and we will continue to do so. Uh, the other thing that is that it feels like it hinges. It feels like it hinges upon hierarchy so much, a system. And, and you know, to Swan's earlier uh, comment about why the West rejects that, I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. It's filtered through so much uh hypocrisy that yeah. especially after 2020 you know we have our 2020 goggles on <laughs> and we see the world just kind of go so my point is to that is it feels like it, it hinges on that yeah i just don't think that that's it it just needs to hinge on that well i mean i, I we only have i want to talk yeah. about we only have swan for a few more minutes so i'd like i'd like to weigh in with uh with theo and uh the hound the hound zechariah I just wanted to say about text and tradition, um, as a scholar, you know, I'm not allowed to just say whatever I want to, and I can't plagiarize, and I can't just do what I want. So I appreciate Mike Swan so much, because in his interview, and even when we began, you know, we finally got a little bit more personal with his testimony, but at the beginning, he was quoting scholar after scholar after scholar after scholar after scholar, because he wants to be right. But it's not Swan speaking, it's the entire tradition. So it's easy to quote John 3.16 or your favorite Bible verse and have a private interpretation. But what, what Swan does as, a, as an academic, we are trying to take the entire conversation as it has occurred throughout all of God's people and integrate that into what we're trying to say. So it may seem hierarchical, but at the same time, I don't, you, the logic doesn't make sense. Being a Protestant, this logic does not make sense, okay? On one hand, we're scared of the Pope because he can just say whatever, and all of a sudden he has the authority, and he can tell me what to do, and I have to obey him. But on the other hand, we say, well, I reject 2,000 or 3,500 years of tradition, and I say the Bible says this. And so on one hand, we're arguing against hierarchy. On the other hand, we want to be free and believe whatever the Bible says. But that's where tapping into that independence wanting our current modern understanding of freedom versus classical freedom to to be what we want to and it seems like you can't have your cake and eat it too you can't argue against hierarchy but at the same time and then want your freedom so you can't be scared of the pope can tell me whatever but then i'm going to have authority to say over and so before you can speak you have to be able to back it up academically well before the pope or the church acts they back it up with tradition and they're trying to say this authority is not coming from one man. It's coming from 3,500 years or whatever the number is 
of tradition backing up these statements so that, yeah, God allows Moses to get a divorce, okay? Because, well, he had to to get things going because Moses is not perfect. But that's not the way it was from the beginning, okay? So not everything is right. But God offers the grace that, that uh, Swan was talking about. The priest is walking in when he's wearing those eight garments, that grace for forgiveness to restore us. And what Francis is trying to do, what we said, is that Francis doesn't want to focus on the sinner being a sinner in sin. He wants to focus on the reconciliation and bringing us all right with Christ, however that may be. And for some people, they're not able to make the jump into Roman Catholicism, but we're all Catholic in a sense. So it just depends on how you, you, you weigh that out. So remember that when you talk about text and tradition. Tradition and I love Dave Burnett, and I'm going to have to quote this one more time. So, Dave, I hope you're listening. But when you told the Heiser that basically Scripture is tradition, it's the traditions that were passed on and written down and, and cherished by the church. And that's what the, the text is. The text is tradition. So how can we separate those two? You really can't. Anyway, I think Hound wanted to be in Yeah. So uh, my... Uh, going back a bit, I, I don't think, and uh want to allude to this, even if you didn't like specifically get to it. It it doesn't it doesn't seem this this isn't this isn't a question of uh from my from my reign. This isn't a question of uh, become Catholic or go to hell. Right? It's uh it's a question of okay uh uh. There's there's a high, there's a high likelihood that uh, say you've 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 been baptized you're 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 likely on your way upwards but uh, here here is what uh, Christ has instructed so if if that's if that's proved to you you should probably go towards that thing that's. That's my uh, interpretation of what's going on here. All right. All right. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. My, uh, uh, but yeah, I, th I think, I think Theo, Theo and I are in sort of this, this weird position where I think we've, we've gotten to the point of, okay, okay, we know, we know there's hierarchy. We know that's, that's there. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in the position of like, okay, I know. I know there's this this uh, Petrine uh, succession going on. So the question where it's like, okay, how does that how does that actually play out, right? And uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> real real quick, can I throw something in here? Yes, please, Keith. Um, I, I've as I've been reading, especially lately, just a lot. I've, I don't know for some reason I've just been reading a lot of stories of people who, you know, left the Catholic Church or even sometimes left Christianity altogether and listening to very sincere, well thought out people express their differences. I've started translating in my mind when someone says like, hey, and I'm an ex-Catholic or I'm not a Catholic because of this or I'm not a Christian because of this or whatever. Uh, sometimes I translate in my head as Catholic in exile. Um, there's a lot of people who are, have really thought hard and have found something that's, that's, you know, just it seems incompatible with their understanding of how life works. That that isn't like something where they're being obstinate or um, you know clinging to something that's necessarily easy. They've they've wrestled with it, 
and they're just not there. And I think, I mean, especially as I read the writings of Pope Francis, um, you know, it, it's very clear to me that the, the Catholic Church, the, the stance of the Catholic Church isn't if you've heard the message of Catholicism, you are bound, regardless of what your brain thinks, to accept it. Um, the, the, you're not asked to to leave your conscientious objections. You know, God calls us all to think and consider these things and get closer, um, you know, to Him, in in you know the way a well-formed conscience, uh, you know, empowers us to do. So, I think I think Catholic tradition actually holds that really strongly. Yeah. Can I say one last thing, and then I got to get going because I got to go to church tonight. So I understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I really like what Keith said, and I really appreciate what Theo and uh, Zechariah had to say. Um, yeah, I mean, so one of the things, you know, so for instance, the church teaches that if God does reveal to you that the Catholic Church, this is in Vatican II, by the way, the council that everyone claims, you know, got us in this whole liberal mess, right? Uh, Vatican II actually says that um, if God reveals to you that the Catholic Church is the one true church and you reject it, then, then that's when condemnation comes in. Right, because then this is God showing you a part of Himself in a way, showing Himself to you, and then you just say no. Right. right? I mean, so yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that like, oh, if you say no right now, then you know there, there's a there's fire <laughs> waiting for you. No, that's not it. Um, and, and the other thing is too, uh, you know, one one of the things that I think you know, growing up as as a Protestant, you know, I listen to people like William Lane Craig and uh, other Catholic apologists, and they'd always say, follow the evidence wherever it leads. Or I'd listen to great Catholic or, or no, excuse me, Christian thinkers who would tell me, like, you know, you have to be open to the fact that you could be wrong. And then I started thinking more and more, like, as I started investigating the claims of the Catholic Church and taking it more seriously, you know, am I going to follow the evidence wherever it leads? Am I ready to potentially be wrong if I am wrong, right? And then, you know, uh, while I was in my conversion process, I remember, like, I prayed to, prayed to Jesus, you know, Lord, make me a child again. I'm like this adult now who has all these baggages and burdens and these things that I want to uphold, right? Like my reputation, my place in the community. Make me a child again and just let me view the evidence with new eyes. Hmm. And honestly, like even, even though I face like pain and rejection and all that from becoming Catholic and, you know, as a Catholic, I have to constantly live with people, you know, straw manning my position or, or saying all sorts of things against me. For Christ, I do it all over again. You know, and, and, and in losing everything for Christ, I gained everything in return because I got the fullness of what he started, of who he is. So, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, sometimes I get worried when, when some people say, like, I you know, I present the evidence and they just say, oh, well, you know, like, uh, I don't care or you know, I don't, so what? You know, and then I'm kind of like, well, I mean, if you have a heart like that, then what is your heart going to be like when God calls you to sacrifice something even greater? Right. Or even... You know, I think about in Matthew 23, 2 to 3, if Jesus told you to obey the rabbis and the Pharisees, would you do it? You know, would you take your king's words that seriously? Or if Jesus, you know, when he told the apostles to give up everything, not even to bury their own mother and father, you know, and just go now. I mean, would you would you make the move? And I'm not saying you as in you guys directly in the studio or online. I'm just saying you in general. Right. Like, you know, the intensity of who Christ is, the intensity of our king. Uh when I looked at the evidence and I started, I, you know, and even right now I'm trying to study the Jewish roots of, the, of Christianity in the early church, mm. I started realizing I can't with an honest intellectual mind, this is me speaking personally, I couldn't honestly look at the evidence and go away not being Catholic. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying you guys are intellectually dishonest or anything like that, right? right. 
But I'm saying, I'm saying, you know, wrestle with the evidence. And yeah. if you're ultimately, honestly not convinced, then yeah, you know, like, uh, can't wait to see on the other side and let's see if Jesus says I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Swan, again, where can everybody find you? Yeah, so I have a, a podcast on Apple Podcasts called Intellectual Conservatism. I have a YouTube channel by the same name. Uh, and then also, um, if you stay tuned, I'm going to try and get um, the article out from Haythrop. So I'll have actually academically published work, and I, I wouldn't mind sharing that with your, your viewers and your listeners and even you guys. So, that would be amazing. Uh, yeah, awesome. and I have a Patreon account, so I appreciate the help. But, you know, it's not about the money for me. Uh, and then, you know, like I'm actually planning on becoming a Dominican priest. Oh, wow. And we make a vow of poverty, so I'm not going to need that money anyway pretty soon. <laughs> so just for the time being, you know, um, yeah, I just appreciate it. But, you know, it's, it's not about the money. I just care about coming out and sharing what, what, how I feel like Christ has impacted my life. Awesome. I, appreciate you got it. my vote for president. You can donate your president's salary, salary back. <laughs> Keep your vow. <laughs> and Gumby? Uh, no, so I really, really value and appreciate you and all your work in your heart behind everything you do. And uh, we will support you here, man. And it's nothing taboo over brew. <laughs> That's right. Zechariah. No, it is. Okay. <laughs> <Good>. Keith. <laughs> the baby on my lap has sapped all uh, meaningful thought from my brain. <laughs> all right. Theo. I just said, uh, being in academics, I know as many scholars as he's quoted, he needs money to buy the books so he can study. So yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what he's going to do with it. So, yeah, I was agreeing. That, that is the struggle. So, yeah. All yeah, right. That's a big struggle to get the academics. So, yeah, support that Patreon account, and then he's going to study more. And you've seen today, and if you go to his previous, we've been talking about that debate with Ty, if you go to his a YouTube channel, and you see all the scholars he's quoted, you can see what this man has done. And, and he just said, when did you become Catholic? Uh, Pentecost 2020. There you go. So you see all of this research he's done in the short time, and if you support him with that Patreon account before he becomes Dominican, how much more studies can he accomplish? Right? So, yeah, I, as a scholar in the missionary field, it's very difficult to come across scholar material. So yeah, support him. All right. And please reach out to us. We're on Facebook and Twitter and you know, every social media platform. Please pay for our beers on Patreon. Or write to Bible Over Brews on uh, Anchor.fm. Thanks. Have a great night. Peace. Au revoir. Thank you.